Welcome to the Wheel of Sport, home of the greatest sports stories ever told. My name's Ian McNally and with me in Edinburgh, Scotland is... Matt Lavery, Matt Lavery. How's it going, Ian? Yes, very well, Matt. Let me get this wheel spinning. We are on Spotify, Matt. We are available on all of the platforms, so make sure you share this fine podcast with all of your friends. But the topic for this episode is... It's a head-to-head, Ian. Head-to-head? Well, we haven't had a head-to-head for a while. This is going to be interesting, Matt. Are you you doing this? Yeah, I'm going to tell you this. This this is a story that could be a head-to-head. It could be a a bit of a golden moment. It could be one of a kind. Um, But uh, I'm keen to tell it, so I'm going to crowbar it into (laughs) (laughs) head-to-head. Matt, it could be lots of things. Maybe the wheel's arbitrary and we should throw the wheel away. (laughs) Never, never, never. Um, so I'm going to tell you the story of Scott of the Antarctic, famous explorer from the uh, from the 20th century. I'll give you some context here. Scott of the Antarctic, he's an explorer who goes to the Antarctic. Um, spoilers, Matt. Yeah, spoilers, spoilers. spoilers. I mean, um, can we just address something before we go anywhere? This isn't the wheel of snow, Matt. It's the wheel of sport. <laughs> Is he really a sportsman? Well, potentially, yeah. To be discussed. I'll let you. Okay. De- I'll let listener decide. But yeah, so in the early tw- early twentieth century, there's this thing going on called the heroic age, basically where countries are sort of competing, which is maybe the sport element, just to send people to parts of the world that nobody else had been to. And Antarctica was one of the last continents to be explored by human beings. So why was that? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, so this is the race, Britain's race, the story of, 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 of Britain, racing to be the first nation uh, to plant their flag in the geographic South Pole. And Scott, Scott's their boy, Scott's, Scott who's, uh, who's sort of representing Team Britain on this and the empire uh, in the early 20th century. So, And was this, can, was this kind of a, uh, a political thing? It was part of like to show a country's might? Yeah, was, I, is it was just like everybody racing, competing with each other to like to build ships, to take over lands, just to climb things. It's a bit childish, isn't it? It's a bit. It is a bit. Yeah. I mean, I suppose it's a bit like. Uh, yeah, I mean, the idea of having a hero who says, "Oh, this is ours," but I think you know, you you, you stake your cla- stake your claim, you stick your flag in it. Um, so there there is maybe some geopolitical gains but i don't know how how important that was you know to to be the first there and say this this belongs to us now we've claimed it or if uh i don't know how much it mattered it's it's confusing i think it's a lot of bravado more than anything else so do you think the tinder app of the 19th century was called stick your flag in it <laughs> sure <laughs> if you carry if on you like. tell me more about scott <laughs> right well he's he's born in 1868 he comes from a Navy family. Um, he actually joins the Navy cadets when he's 13 years old. And over the next 20 years, he serves on ships around the world. But he's frustrated at sort of the lack of career progression available to him. So he decides to volunteer on board the RSS Discovery, which is a British Antarctic research mission. Um, but it's a privately funded mission. So he's there as a, as a volunteer. But ultimately, the ship ends up falling under the the command of the Royal Navy, and Scott sort of accidentally uh, ends up landing his his first ever command, and he's he's going to be running this ship. 
But as I say, it's a it's a private, real scientific ship uh, expedition, uh, which is heading to the Ant- Antarctic, and it's got a lot of, I guess, different missions. But it's really all about the science. So RRS Discovery uh, sets sail from the Isle of Wight uh, in August 1901, and it arrives in Antarctica five months later on the 8th of January 1902, which. I guess really for me, it puts into context like how far this is, you know, it's eight months, say five months just to get to the start. Matt, that is crazy. Like, just hold on, just that in itself is an amazing expedition. Five months to the start. Um, So we get there in January, which is the summer uh, in Antarctica. So relatively ice-free conditions uh, when it first arrived. Uh, it's able to chart the coastline. Uh, it makes various zoological, scientific, geographic observations. And then winter starts to set in. So they anchor up at a place called McMurdo Sound. Uh, and they prepare the expedition for its main objective, uh, which is going to be two years of scientific study. But more importantly, perhaps uh, from the age of heroes uh, aspect, is to make the first attempt to the South Pole. The South Pole attempt is going to be made by Scott, a doctor and zoologist, a guy called Edward Wilson, and also Scott's third in command, Ernest Shackleton. So they see out the winter, and then in November 1902, Scott, Wilson, the zoologist and doctor, and Shackleton, the third in command, leave the Discovery boat with the dogs and, and head to the to the geographic South Pole. But from the beginning, this journey, it's got problems. Pretty soon into it, they discover that the food they have for the dogs has gone bad. And by the 31st of December 1902, they've had to turn back. So they've, they've been away less than two months and it's, it's, it's a failed attempt. But it wasn't a complete failure. They did go for 300 miles further south than anybody else has ever gone before. So they, I guess they now hold the record uh, whilst they didn't quite achieve their goal. And on the way back, as I say, it's been a failed journey. It gets worse as Shackleton, uh, he gets scurvy and has to be supported by Wilson and Scott, who are obviously already knackered from their 960-mile trip with sick dogs. They've got to take care of Shackleton, who's sick, um, and get back finally to uh, to the Discovery on the 3rd of January. Shackleton's sent home to recover uh, by a relief ship, but uh, Scott and the rest of the crew stay on the Discovery for another 12 months until uh, 1904, when they sort of head home. Now, the Discovery trip... You might say, oh, it's a failure. They didn't achieve their goal of of reaching the South Pole. But as I say, they went 300 miles further than anybody else had ever gone. And from a scientific point of view, it was a huge success. Um, So Scott's going home as a a hero, particularly for his achievements, you know, in terms of scientific research. Um, He's also been the first captain of a ship to sorry first leader of of an expedition to spend two consecutive winters at this high latitude in Antarctica so he's really demonstrating his abilities as a as a leader and as an adventurer and as a someone committed to scientific research and was there a sense I suppose that like I mean that's an amazing feat for somebody you know for the whole crew to stay out there for so long Mm. that would change you wouldn't it as a person oh you'd think so wouldn't it it just like he must have been quite a different man after and the rest of the crew as well. Yeah. Must have been different men when they came back because part of it I'm sure you would have great memories of it like being fun for some parts 
but it'd just be bleak. Yeah. Well, imagine <laughs> those de- those time. deep winters. Yeah. I mean, it would, you know, the the ship's completely, you know, frozen in. Can't move. You can't leave for the blizzards and things. It must have been very very challenging circumstances. But uh, from Scott's point of view, he's you know it's all worthwhile because he once back in England, you know, he's he's fated as a hero. He's promoted to captain by the navy. He receives medals, honours, degrees, accolades, you know, not just by the British, but other institutions around the world. He's, he's an absolute hero, you know, in, in sort of social society. People love him. He's, he's one of Britain's great, great heroes of the, of the era. Wow. Saying all this, Matt, it, I kind of feel I wasted my gap year. <laughs> well, <it's, laughs> you, you were just born a bit too late, Ian. It's not your fault. <laughs> um, his primary objective when he gets back is to write up his account of his, his expedition, which is going to be published as a book. Um, so in 1905, it's published. And in this account, Scott's account, he describes in great detail about how Shackleton's illness, Shackleton got scurvy, that was the key factor in the failed attempt. So he almost blames Shackleton. No, you know, maybe not blames Shackleton, but blames the illness that Shackleton suffered. And this leads to a massive falling out between Shackleton and Scott. Scott goes, as I say, he's been promoted. So he returns to his Navy career uh, after the book's published. But Shackleton feels like he's really got something to prove. And he wants to go back to Antarctica. So now, after Scott's sort of set the record as the leader of the last expedition, Shackleton decides to arrange his own expedition to the South Pole. And he's going to go and... Uh, beat Scott's record and try and reach the geographical South Pole himself. So the problem Shackleton has is he doesn't have the same public high profile sort of persona that Scott's had. So Shackleton is finding it a lot more difficult to raise funds, to finance the expedition. It's time consuming and it's difficult, but eventually he can do it. It takes a couple of years. So by 1907, he's raised the funds and his expeditions to set sail in August 1907. And his expedition, Shackleton's, will be called the Nimrod Expedition. So he says he's going to set sail in August. But before he can go, there's a bit of a bit of a hurdle to cross with Scott. Because Scott's been there before. And as I say, he stayed, he, he put the base up in McMurdo Sound, the old Discovery base. And Shackleton's planning on using this. But Scott and Shackleton have fallen out and Scott's pretty annoyed about Shackleton saying he wants to do it. So Scott and Shackleton and the other guy who you remember, Edward Wilson, uh, who was the other member of the Discovery Expedition. And Wilson's sort of the mediator and Shackleton and Scott are exchanging these angry letters. As I said, they've fallen out. And in the end, Shackleton basically acquiesces and gives up and uh, agrees to base his camp further east and start his own base. He won't use McMurdo sound. And that's a problem for Shackleton because Shackleton wants to reach the geographic South Pole, but he also, which is his primary goal, but he also has a secondary goal of reaching the magnetic South Pole. And by using this other base that, uh, that Scott's insisted upon, basically he can't reach the magnetic South Pole. So he has to abandon that straight off. So Shackleton's pretty Feeling pretty hard done by. What attracted him to the magnetic South Pole? <laughs> That's pretty good, Ian. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I I love I love this like the the uh, kind of the dispute that they're having with each other, which could actually 
you know, we look at like arguments on Twitter, like spats that happen. Yeah. And we think that's like, we build that up as being serious. It's not, this could be a matter of life and death. Life and death Imagine yeah, if he sends, like, if he says, you can't use this base, I'll send you further. And then Shackleton dies as a result. That's on you, isn't it? It's on yeah. you, Scott. Oh, it's horrible. Like, <laughs> really, really, uh, yeah, mean spirited. But anyway, Shackleton sets off in August, as I say, 1907. But by the time he reaches there, it's now January 1908. So it's almost four years. Bearing in mind, remember, the Discovery departed in 1904. Well, when Shackleton arrives, the ice has changed. You know, the continent's changed. And he, the ice shelf's different to, to how it was four years earlier. So Shackleton re- gets there and he basically realises he can't anchor in the new base that he's agreed with Scott. So he's got two choices. I either abandon the mission altogether or I break my promise to Scott and I do use McMurdo after all. Well, Shackleton says, yeah, I'll crack on. So he goes off to McMurdo (laughs) and uses this base. Um, I mean, why wouldn't you? You know, Scott's not even there. (laughs) I mean, that that is, yeah, you're not going to get caught. uh, Yeah, exactly. For for a while. But it's like like if if your mates have gone on holiday and you're left in the flat on your own, and there's like a six-pack of beer in the fridge, and you're like, they're not going to remember that by the time they get back. <laughs> you know, they've been in, in Magaluf for two weeks. They're not yeah, going to yeah. remember. It's exactly the same as a six-pack Exactly the same. <laughs> it's exactly yeah. <laughs> um, So Shackleton's there. He's in McMurdo, and the Nimrod leaves, the, the boat leaves. So they, they set up their camp, and uh, the first thing they do is they scale Mount Erubus, uh, which is the second highest volcano in Antarctica. So, you know, straight off the bat, bang, achievement. Nobody's ever done that before. We have. So Shackleton's off to a flyer. After this, their expedition, the Nimrod crew and, and Shackleton, they start to prepare for winter. So over this period, this is when they really meticulously plan for their journey to the South Pole. They also decide they've already broken their promise to Scott by not using McMurdo Base. They may as well now also break the promise about not going for the South Magnetic Pole, Magnetic South Pole, because why not? They can reach it now. So by uh, <laughs> by October, the worst of the weather's subsided, and he's got his plans. Basically, there's going to be a couple of different uh, parties that he's going to send out Shackleton. So the first is the Northern Party. Don't get confused; they're still in the South Pole, but uh, the Northern Party. I'll get this. They've got a motor car, and they're going to dry and drive. <laughs> of course they have, yeah. Of course they have. Of course they yeah. have. They're going to begin their 290-mile trek to the South Magnetic Pole, and that's important because they're going to plant the Union flag at the Magnetic Pole and also claim this land, Victoria land, for the British Empire. So their job is... <laughs> Are they going to claim the, the petrol station as well on the way? <laughs> I mean, taking a motor car is one thing, but yeah, I don't well, think they've filled that through. It, it, I mean, it, it didn't. It didn't last too long. Uh, you're, you're probably not not surprised to hear. Uh, but they did achieve. The, the car didn't last too long. But the the objective did. As I say, they set off on in October, and by January 1909, they've achieved their goal. So they're picked up back at the Nimrod on the 4th of February. They've been to the South Magnetic Pole. So again, the, the Nimrod expedition, Shackleton's expedition, tick that off. And they've claimed this land for the British Empire, which, you know, is going to score lots of points back with, uh, you know, back with the, the, the rulers back home, uh, the bosses. 
But on top of that, as I say, that was the northern party in the car. You've got the southern party, who leave a couple of weeks later, the end of October, and Shackleton's leading that one. He's not got a car. He's got ponies. <laughs> For the poor ponies. I know, yeah. I mean, it's 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 mad, right? But you've got to think, this has never been done before, so they're just making it up as they go along. Like, they don't know what works and what doesn't work. So they're using po- ponies for the p- first po- portion of the journey. But as as you can imagine, yeah, the ponies are overcome by the harsh Arctic winter. <laughs> and I, look, I just got an image of these ponies with, like, you know, ribbons in oh, their mane. Oh, no. And, like, awful, you know, they're going, look, we've got three ponies, but we've only got two North Face jackets. So you're gonna, <laughs> one of you is going to have to go without here. Oh. Well, they uh, by November, the ponies have perished. The group's low on rations. And they're forced to, like, manhaul. So they're, they're dragging their equipment for the rest of the expedition. You know, Christmas comes, they, you know, which they celebrate with a creme de men from the brandy, which I, which I really like. But they're getting, you know, they're just so exposed to the elements and the harsh winds, the blizzards. They just mean that, basically, the, the, they can't leave their tents during the day. And, and obviously, with every day that passes in this blizzard where they can't leave or do anything, their resources and rations are just diminishing. And by early January, January 9th, Shackleton just says, we've got to, we've got to give up or else we're going to die here. And they just didn't have enough food for the return journey. He was like, if we go any further, we, we might not make it back. So he turns around and, it, and, and he came so close, Shackleton. He was 97 miles from the geographic South Pole, which, you know, so he's now going home a record holder. But uh, as he wrote to his wife, he said, I thought, dear, that you would rather have a live ass than a dead lion, which uh, which I quite like, you know, quite humble. That is very humble nice. Yeah, um, that is very fine. I, I think also the thing that strikes me is that, you know, the snow blindness as well it would have been immense, you know, for like to be exposed to that you know, vivid light every yeah. day, like just would damage your your eyes oh, totally. irreparably well, and so it, that would play with your judgment your mentality your mental health everything that, that's i mean it. these these guys are extraordinary aren't they they're getting they're getting attacked in every way by the elements as you say you know things that you might not consider you probably think about the cold and the frostbite but yeah it's it's the mental fatigue you know we're calculating your rations and obviously you get stuck in a blizzard you start eating into those it's like well how far can we go it's like you know deep sea swimming or something you know you dive in you you can dive so far but you've got to get back as well and that's the uh the challenge for these guys i suppose but at least when you're deep sea swimming you can you can just wee in your wetsuit like but these fellas i mean even go in the toilet i mean <laughs> yeah. that seems like such an ordeal <laughs> yeah exactly just freezing as soon when as you actually out. start i mean oh. the thing is is that these things are always presented to us in like a grand way you know like we're learning about them at school but actually, when you look at the minutiae, it's so bleak, yeah. so traumatic. <laughs> like, I just, I, I can't actually think about it too long because it upsets me. But um, it made of sterner keep, stuff keep these going. days, clearly. No, like, I'm, I'm <laughs> retreating close to the pole. That's what I'm doing. So, <laughs> so, um, so Shackleton goes home, okay? As I say, he's gone up the second tallest mountain. He's reached the magnetic South Pole and he's come 97 miles from the geographical South Pole, which is really what everybody's after. But while Shackleton's away, Scott's been, Scott's obviously onto him 
and he starts making plans and preparing for his next attempt at the pole. And Scott's next attempt is going to be called the Terra Nova Expedition. Scott selects a crew of 65 men. Uh, he secures his funding and he heads off and he reaches Antarctica on the 4th of January, 1911. And again, it takes, them, it takes these guys a long time just to reach Antarctica in the first place. And that, just like the other expeditions, they'll then spend the winter getting familiar and then start in the summer in sort of October time. They're, they're on their way down. And this this is where the, the sort of story twists a little bit. They get some really worrying news for Scott and the Terra Nova team when they reach Melbourne. They get a telegram saying that the Norwegian explorer, Roald Admanson, has decided that he is going to go for the South Pole as well. Roald Admanson, he's come in from nowhere, right? Because this guy, he's a, he's a Norwegian explorer who is incredible right and you've got to understand that this time Norway's you know it's a newly uh, free country newly independent country it's an ally of Britain it, that, that that matters because basically with, within this competing age of heroes if you like you don't do the dirty on your ally so Britain and Norway would have an agreement not to be competing for the same thing at the same time. You know, you can have a gentleman's, you, you have a go, if you fail, we'll have a go, but you wouldn't be racing. And Amundsen knew this, but he, was, he had two goals that he set for himself in his life. The first one was, because he, he was fascinated by explorers, the first one was, he said, I want to go from the Atlantic to the Pacific along this stretch of water called the Northern Passage, which is through this not this sort of um, this area full of knots of tiny islands and ice, basically across northern Canada. And there was a guy called John Franklin. So John Franklin, who, who tried an expedition, but he'd been lost at sea um, and had obviously failed. So he was, Edmonton wanted to achieve that. And then the other thing he wanted to achieve was something that was uh, attempted by the great Norwegian explorer, a guy called Nansen, uh, which was to reach the geographical North Pole. So, Amundsen, in 1900, he achieves the, the Northern Passage. He gets through from the Atlantic uh, to the Pacific, and then he turns to his, his next mission, which is the North Pole. However, in 1909, within just a couple of weeks of each other, these two American explorers, uh, Robert Peary and Frederick Cook, they announced that they've been to the North Pole uh, on two separate expeditions, and they've achieved it. Now, Anmundsen's just disappointed, and for him, you know, third is nothing. So he thinks, well, there's nothing to be gained from going to the North Pole, but the South Pole's still available here. But as I said, politically, he can't do it. He's not allowed. He knows about Scott, and he knows about Shackleton, he knows what they've been doing, and he knows about the British attempts, and he knows he shouldn't be competing. So what he does is, he says, okay, I'm going to go down past the Cape, down in Africa, and then come back up the other side because it's easier to, uh, to access the North Pole there. It's sort of easier ice. But basically, when he gets down, he doesn't come back up again. He just says, yeah, that'll, that'll do. And off he goes. So there. he just thinks, so the idea is he's coming down, trying to get easy access to the South Pole. To the North Pole. So he goes to south the North Pole. to come north, if that makes sense, because where he is ah, in yeah, Oslo, okay. in Oslo, you can't really get to ah, the North Pole. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. too far. So he's going to go down and around and come back yep. up the other side. So he sets off heading south 
and everyone thinks, yeah, he's going south to come north. But he gets to Madeira and he reveals his true intentions and he sends a telegram wow. to Melbourne where he knows Scott's going to be saying, just a heads up, I'm going for the South Pole. The race is on. <laughs> that is so good. So that good. is so good. Like so good. And like, <laughs> and it, this is a big problem for Scott because Edmundson has a tremendous reputation. Right, he's a meticulous planner. Uh, he had a reputation basically for being probably the best organized explorer of his generation. And he's got a head start. You know, he's going to get there before Scott. So Scott only and finds growing up in this. Norway, he's going to be good on skis and oh, going he's... across. He's going to be. He's got to have a physical advantage as well and experience, surely. Maybe this is exciting, Matt. This is a good head-to-head. Oh, it is real head-to-head. So now it's Norway versus the Brits, and Scott's concerned. He's angry, but he he continues obviously as as he would down to Antarctica. He gets down there and the crew start building a camp. And obviously one of the first things you do is you send out a small team to sort of explore the local area and maybe carry out some scientific studies. This is the other thing that's important in this, by the way. Scott, as part of his expedition and part of the funding, he's committed to doing a lot of scientific research, just like he did on his earlier discovery mission. Well, Edmundson has none of that. He's actually told a group of scientists that he was supposed to be picking up not to bother. He telegrams them and says, you're not coming anymore, and just leaves them. And he says, I'm not doing any scientific research. I'm exploring. I'm in a race. So Edmundson's got all of his... Uh, he's just you know built for speed, if you like, but Scott has all of these civilian scientists and all of this scientific equipment that he wants to take, and he's loyal to that. You know, He feels honour-bound to, to, to do his scientific research. Um, but obviously, as I say, one of the first things they do is go around to look at, to do some scientific studies whilst they're setting up the camp. And this small teams go out, Scott's not with them, and they actually find a Mudson's base. So they anchor up, uh, Victor Campbell's the, the leader of this little group. They, uh, and Victor goes over to Edmundson and he describes them as courteous and hospitable and, and quite friendly. And they, so obviously they go back to, uh, to Scott and the Terra Nova camp and scott is absolutely you know outraged he's apoplectic <laughs> he's furious and he wants to go and confront him he's like now i know where he is i'm going to go and give him a piece of my mind and scott's colleagues are saying mate don't do that don't confront him you know just focus on what we're doing we can win this race he can't have let him get away scot free <laughs> <laughs> well well, Scott, Scott, Scott uh, doesn't go and confront him. So they spend the winter just, uh, you know, along the way there from uh, from the Norwegian camp. And it's a bitter winter. But in September 1911, you know, spring's starting to come. Scott's finalised his plan. And he's basically decided to split his crew into three groups. Fifteen are going to come with him. And then there's going to be two of the supporting groups uh, that are going to go out first and create sort of supply depots along the route to the pole. So that's that's sort of the strategy. And then of these three groups, his group and then the two support groups, he's then going to create, uh, I, I guess, a final group for the final push, uh, which he's going to decide later on, I guess, depending on sort of who's who's most fit and well after, after this uh, difficult challenge. 
So the first group set off uh, in October 1911, and they've got motor-powered sledges. Get out of town. They broke down after 50 miles. But again, you know... Oh, come on. That's the, like, you know, buying a jet ski from Aldi. Well, you think... It's like, <laughs> they're giving it all a try. But that, the, you know what? That was actually some good research because although the, the, these, uh, these motorized sledges broke down, they were then seen as something that could be used whilst cars and ponies were were less successful if they'd had a reliable <laughs> motor-powered sledge. And that, and, and that was something I think that the Norwegians were worried about. They felt that could give the Brits an advantage here, these motor-powered sledges. But as I say, 50 miles in, they break down. So the group has to continue on foot for the remaining 150 miles. So hey-ho. <laughs> oh second goodness me. The second, second and third group left about 10 days later on the 1st of November. And they meet up with uh, with the motor party three weeks later. But progress is slow from the outset. And this is exacerbated in early December when a blizzard strikes just as the team are approaching the end of the Ross Ice Shelf. And the blizzard ends up holding the men in the tent for five days. Again, this is eating into the rations. It's weakening the horses that are tied up outside. And after the blizzard's finished, they decided they, they should kill the horses for meat and just carry on on foot. By the 23rd of December, the original team of 15's been whittled down to just eight, as the, the other seven have actually been sent back to the base with some instructions to send dogs to meet Scott and the team for the return journey. So Scott's thinking ahead here. You know, he's, he's split his group of 15 to, to eight, sent seven back. And this is really, really the, the tragic part of the tale, because... Unfortunately, those orders were either overlooked or forgotten or there was some sort of mistake. But basically, those dogs that would have helped Scott and the team return, they never arrived. Um, So, obviously, at this stage, you know, Scott doesn't know that. He's there, small crew. 9th of January, they reach Shackleton's furthest seven point. And they're now deep into the uh, plateau of the Antarctica. The group's weakening, but they continue on. And finally, on the 16th of January, they can see the South Pole. They've made it. But unfortunately for Scott and his crew, the Norwegian flag is already no. there. They've been beaten. Can't you just take it out? Is that what? <laughs> like, because there's no cameras there. You just... <laughs> well, I think there probably would have been a camera when the Norwegians were there. They've left. <laughs> yeah. And they're, and they're already on the way home. Oh, man. Um, Wow. So now the, the disappointment, obviously, of coming second in this race, it weighs heavy on the British team. They now have an 883-mile journey back on foot. They're, as I said, the resources are depleted. Scott's already so concerned he sent people back to bring new rations and dogs to help. And things aren't looking good. Um, and the first, look, the first half of that return journey was, was pretty smooth. Uh, they made it in relatively good time. But then the team hits... Beardmore Glacier and their look changes. And again, this is where Scott is can be criticised. Others defend him. But he made a decision when they got to the Beardmore Glacier to do more research, more scientific research. Now, his team's knackered. They've been trudging. You know, they're defeated at the pole. But he decides to spend a day basically picking up some rocks out of the glacier because there was he felt that there was some scientific merit there. And as I say, his critics really think, you know, what are you doing? You added 35 pounds of rocks to their load. You know, your men are already exhausted. But then other people 
defended him saying, well, actually, it was a sunny day. It was a beautiful place. The work of getting those rocks out actually wasn't too challenging. The weight would have made very little difference to the energy expended. And basically, it was a nice, relaxing day for these guys rather than hiking on. They'd been on their feet. You know, giving them something to do and occupy them was was good management. And they got to enjoy a day of rest. So, look, I don't know. It does sound like fun, Matt, doesn't it? It does sound like fun. I mean, I, I might, at the weekend, I might go and pick some rocks. <laughs> but <laughs> but if the thing is, though, if these guys have signed up to this expedition, yeah. they've signed up for everything, haven't they? Well, I that's, mean, it. Uh, <laughs> that's extraordinary. And the, the thing is, as I've said, Edmundson. He, he is keen on science, but just not on ex- this expedition. On this expedition, he is just all about getting in as quick and out as quick. And, you know, some people have said that Scott's refusal to give up on this scientific goal is, is sort of what cost his men. Because they, they were suffering from malnutrition, exhaustion, uh, frostbite. And shortly after leaving the, Be- the Beardmore Glacier, that's when his team start to die. Uh, Edgar Evans is the first to succumb. And sort of he had the reputation of being the team's strongest man. Uh, and he'd been weakened and his, his, his hands are uncovered, he's frostbitten, his, his eyes have, have sort of gone. Um, and eventually he died probably of brain hemorrhage, uh, 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 brain damage from, from falling off. But also he's got scurvy, high altitude, dehydration. You know, it's... There's a lot going on, and Edgar Evans is the first first to die, as I say. Um, the rest of the team continued, but the the, the weather's ch- turning, uh, and and over the next few days and weeks, they some of the worst weather that's ever been recorded in that area battered Scott and his group. So again, it's just really bad luck. But others have you know said bad management. Um, on the fifteenth of March, that was when the second team member, a guy called Lawrence Oates, decides he can't carry on, and he actually. I mean, it, this is an incredible story, but he he decides, he, he begs Scott to leave him. He decides he can't carry on, but Scott refuses to to leave him, demands that he keeps going. Uh, and then one night, uh, basically Oates just gets up and says, oh, I'm just going to go out, just go outside for a little bit, but I might be some time. And he just walks off into the blizzard, uh, basically oh. sacrificing himself because he knew that rations were running low. He knew he was weak. Um and lame from frostbite, he can ha- he can hardly walk. So he just essentially commits suicide by walking off into a blizzard, leaving his his teammates hopefully to to live. Because you know that in in Kangaroo Island in Australia, the there's a spot where kangaroos, when they know they're about to die, they take themselves off to really? that spot, and and they they perish, and that just like it's it's such a it feels like so quite emotional like to be able to yeah, do that yeah. it's like, um well it is i mean this, yeah. this this guy you know what an act of self-sacrifice what a, what a heroic heroic act but unfortunately it's it doesn't mean it doesn't mean too much in the in the scheme of things because basically the, the, the rest of them end up end up dying as well scott sort of starts to realize that the chances of of him edward wilson who was uh a veteran of the first expedition and a guy called Henry Bowers, they're not they're not likely to survive. Um, you know, the rations are running low. By the 22nd of March, they're down to two days of food, but they're three days away at least from the next depot. Uh, and then a blizzard strikes again and, and it stops them from moving. Um, and they, they, the three men died in their, 
died in their tent. What what's remarkable is there was they actually had morphine, so they could have killed themselves and sort of taken the maybe the, the simpler way out but they decided not to they they sort of died naturally um and you know they're all writing letters scott i think probably was the last to die and he's written copious letters um to the expedition's backers to his colleagues to the families of his dead comrades uh, to his family obviously and it's really powerful writing you know it you know it's 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 really really sad obviously but quite interesting to, I guess, and, and you know, to, to read something that's written by somebody who's sort of condemned and, and basically condemned himself and and his colleagues. So yeah, the the three men were found. Uh, they were given a funeral, and a, and a cairn of snow was erected over their graves. And, and to this day, Gott Wilson, Boas, Oates, and, and Evans, their their bodies all still lie in the an- ice of Antarctica. And uh, I guess eventually one day I'll, I'll end up in the sea. Um, but yeah, quite a quite a sort of sad end to the tale. Um, and as I say, Scott's a divisive character because of that, a bit controversial. But uh, yeah, Other, others have said that you know it was it was actually the deception that led to this because if Admanson hadn't sort of done this to Scott, Scott's team would have been returning with you know they would have been the first there. They would have had higher spirits. You know they died just just eleven miles from from home. You know, maybe they they wouldn't have struggled. You know, the the morale and, and of the success could have carried them home. Um, but before that, Abudson only decided to do the South Pole because the North Pole had been claimed. But the two lads, Peary and Cook, their claims have basically been debunked. And wow. so that so that they sort of <laughs> deceived everybody in the first place. So. You know, it's it's uh, there's some twists of fate there, and you know, there's there's maybe more to it than just bad luck or bad decisions. But uh, yeah, fair, fair bit going on. It kind of saddens me as well that when they met each other, you know, before they're about to embark on the the expedition for the South Pole, that they didn't the Norway team and the British team didn't join together. I mean. Yeah, do a joint of, uh, thing. you know, and and actually use their rations and skills and and experience and knowledge, and that they could have done a joint effort. But it, what's extraordinary about the story, Matt, is it's so dramatic and so full of action, yet it all would have taken place in slow motion. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like it's such a slow thing. You know, like when you're talking about the time frame, it's so slow. But at the same time, it's so dynamic and so uh, action-packed. It's such an incredible story. I mean, yeah. and we said at the very start about whether these, you know, these people on the expeditions, whether they're sportsmen. My goodness, they're sportsmen. They <laughs> like you're having it. <laughs> the yeah. Look, I think I'd, I'd be willing to fight anybody uh, who says that these guys are not sportsmen. It's quite extraordinary what the what they've done and and stupid remarkably yeah, I mean, that's stupid the as well thing. it's, it's <laughs> absolutely crazy fun. but fair play to these lads you know pushing themselves and you know t- testing the boundaries i guess it's sort of almost a an age of enlightenment sort of kind of thing or a, i don't know they're, they're just trying to understand more about and it, you know it's for scientific gain as well as personal and vainglorious stuff um yeah i don't know it's 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 an interesting story for sure i don't know how I don't know if I'd be exactly keen to sign up, but it's interesting. The amazing thing is, is that there is some photographic evidence of 
uh, this oh, as yeah. well, isn't it? And These the guys look cold. They look so cold. <laughs> I think there's some photographs of like inside the sh- the ship and things like that, which is yeah. just really brings it it to life and brings it home. But my goodness, the what a story of human endeavor and encapsulates not just like the individual like kind of personal motivations of people but that of uh the time as well mm. that of countries and of the spirit of a of a generation i think that's such an amazing story matt oh, cool. um, well, i'm glad you thanks enjoyed so it. much and thank you to for listening to the wheel of sports where the home of the greatest sports stories ever told there we go that was a great sports story and uh, make sure that you uh, follow us wherever you get your podcasts and uh, share the podcast we've got over 60 episodes at the time recording make sure you share them with your friends word of mouth is the best uh, recommendation but also if you leave a review wherever you get your podcast that also helps people to find us as well matt it's been an absolute pleasure thanks ever so much ian and thank you for listening perfect we'll see you next time on the wheel of sports bye-bye